Hey everyone, you might notice some audio quality issues with this episode. We know about it, we're working on it, and we hope to have it fixed in the recording next time. Thank you for listening. This is also peak Spider-Man. The project-based learning that goes on at Ellingham. Also, spoilers for Veronica Mars, but also why haven't you watched Veronica Mars at this point? (laughs) Yeah, why can't teenage female detectives have it all? Welcome to Literary Connections. We're friends who started a podcast because we live on opposite sides of the world and we're using books to stay connected. I'm James Earl, currently on holiday break, and similar to Nate in a treehouse, I'm achieving peak me in Milan, Italy. And I'm Melissa Hansen, trying to avoid being murdered in San Francisco, California. <laughs> That's just a permanent state of being, regardless of where I am, <laughs> any location. Yeah, yeah. Right, I was also right. avoiding it while I was in Illinois, but mostly I think I'm trying to avoid it being killed by, you know, a pandemic right now than like yeah. a stabbing or asphyxiation. <laughs> All things from the, the Truly Devious letter. Yeah. So this week we're reading Truly, comma, Devious by Maureen Johnson. The whole series, all four books. The whole four books. We read them all. Very proud of us. Yes. So we're going to have to start this with a spoiler alert. We're going to give spoilers for all four books really fast. I mean, mostly I don't believe in spoilers. I think I've said that before on this podcast. However, I recognize that in the detective fiction genre, that's a different game. Like, part of the reason you read this genre is for the puzzle of it. Right. This is not like one of the YA books, like Tokyo Ever After, where it's like, oh my God, where she'll get together with her love interest. The answer obviously is yes. It's barely a spoiler. But this is like, who killed someone? Right, right. The point is trying to figure out not just who uh, the murderer is, but how she's going to figure it out and who's going to die along the way. And so we're going to spoil all those things. So this one, the spoiler actually matters. Having said that, summary. Okay. Well, you know, this whole book is about playing games. So let's do it. Let's gamify this. How about I get 60 seconds to do the first three books, and then James, you get 30 seconds to do the fourth book. Okay. Got it? Got it. Okay. It's all about competition. It's about the game. Okay. A billionaire puts a lot of money into building the Ellingham Academy, where the best and the brightest all gather. He lives there with his wife and his daughter, who both, surprise, get kidnapped in the 1930s. A bunch of years later, Stevie Bell, teenage detective, comes to the campus in order to solve the murder. Not only does she solve the murder of who kidnapped this guy's wife and child and what happened to them, and it's also who the surprise father and mother of the child was, because it turns out not the billionaire. She also solves the murder of who's killing her classmates. And it turns out to be the head of school, who is being nicknamed Call Me Charles. On this adventure, she makes a bunch of friends, um, including one of the authors, Matt Machinists, as well as she falls in love with the son of her parents' favorite politician. But don't worry, both she and the son hate this dude. So it's all legit. It's fine. That was not bad. Okay, book four. Book four. I have not planned for this at all to do a 30-second recap, but I'm going to go for it anyway. And there's a summer camp. It's been purchased by a tech startup bro. And in the 1970s, there was a murder there, a triple, a quadruple homicide, where three bodies were stacked in a box, and one of them was found on a path. And Stevie Bell, the great teenage detective, attends the camp to solve the murder, and she figures out that it was the Nazis the whole time. It was Nazis the whole time! Oh my gosh! <laughs> wow, you have four seconds left. 
<laughs> you solved the mystery. Yeah, I didn't do a great job with summary. I basically established setting and then went straight to the end. To be fair, that's exactly how I felt reading the fourth book, where I was like, oh, I'm this atmosphere piece about the 1970s murders. Was it a serial killer? Nope, it was Nazis the whole time. It was Nazis the whole time. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. All right. I think we did a job. I think that we had to to do it like that, because if we tried to do our normal summaries, that would be the whole hour of the podcast. So now that we've spoiled it and we've summarized it, let's get into the to the details. I guess the like place to start off here is genre. Like we've never done a detective fiction here. I admittedly I don't read a lot of detective fiction, so it was it was pretty new to me. Since reading these, I've read an Agatha Christie book. I read and then there were none. I've been trying to get more into it, and and so my initial thoughts on just like the genre, which maybe can help us frame some of the things that happened in it, is that at the end of the day, this is like a pretty conservative genre, and what I mean by that is it depends on this idea that like the rules make sense, and that then like somebody violates the rules, there's a crime, it disrupts the status quo, it disrupts like some sort of paradise, and that the detective's job is to come in localize the blame for whatever that thing is, create a scapegoat for the chaos that has ensued since the crime, exile that person from the community, and then you, like, restore some paradise. And so, like, it's not a progressive thing. It's not like let's change a system kind of a genre. It's like a system works. There is a bad actor. We can localize blame and then return to some impressive status quo. So it's like the opposite of a hero's journey type thing where, like, Hero goes, becomes changed, returns to the world, changes the world, and I don't know, there's like progress made. Oh my god, James, blowing my mind. I <sighs> never thought about like mysteries this way, and I've always heard that like what J.K. Rowling did with Harry Potter is, and obviously like after Harry Potter, she started writing mystery novels, and that Harry Potter is actually just a series of mystery novels. And one of the biggest complaints of Harry Potter, at least from my perspective, is that the seventh book ends and it's like all well with the world. Yeah. And I was like, this garbage, <laughs> there's no way that this honors the hero's journey. I think you're trying to give him something good in the end. But if the whole point of a murder mystery series is that you turn to the status quo, in fact, she's completely in genre in that. I have never thought about murder movies that way, and that blew my mind. Talk to me how that, how that applies here. <laughs> yeah, one one like interesting thing about these ones is that they're cold cases first. So like I haven't quite worked out like why that's important, but like there's something different about that happening in the present day, and something about this happening, like solving a crime from the 1930s or whatever, or 1970s in the, in the second book. But like the idea that blame is localized to to Nazis in the fourth book is interesting, because <laughs> um, there is nobody like in both cases there's nobody to like kick out of the community. Like the the primary murderer person, whatever, is already gone, and so it becomes about revising how we understand the past. And I think there's something interesting there in like this ethics of how we perceive what has happened in the past and localizing blame to a location in the past so that we can move forward? I don't really know. I think that's really interesting because when it turned out that the school rector, who is Call Me Charles, like this white Cambridge or Harvard, I don't know, all the degrees from the fancy places, the entire book series, there's a woman who's like underneath him as his second in charge, Dr. Quinn. Dr. Quinn, is it Dr. Quinn, like medicine woman? Yeah. Yeah. And everyone's like, why is she his second in command? She does not seem the kind of person who would like take 
direction from this like white male buffoon. The whole novel is then usurping that of like, nope, we're going to get him out of charge. And yeah, we're going to put this woman in his place. And so there is really this reconsidering of the status quo and the ideal in who ends up being the murderer. And same thing with the FBI agent being the person who kidnaps the wife and the daughter. And I think that there's also something interesting. I was trying to unpack what the book's relationship with wealth is because it comes up so frequently. Yes, I I agree. The trope of the like benevolent billionaire just seems so outdated and yet it, this book like struggled to pull away from it which i guess like we struggle as a culture to pull away from it as well but like the the book seemed dependent on a premise like nope this billionaire is one of the good ones and the second one too both of them have yeah. benevolent billionaire as the, the people who are actually like, pushing the plot forward yeah from box books. yeah in the in the fourth book he is <laughs> he's more of a buffoon but yes he's still a benevolent billionaire yeah and it's like oh well he's like well-meaning but in both cases these billionaires end up helping the world and they solve these crimes through their wealth but there's a contrast of that with the edward king stuff with the senator yes was the whole point of edward king senator who Stevie's parents work for, who is like obviously like a Trump stand-in, or maybe eh, I would say more of like a DeSantis. Yeah, Ted Cruz. Yeah, Ted Cruz. Because yeah. he, he wasn't a buffoon. He was like intelligent. Right. And he was actually charismatic in yeah. like a traditional way, whereas Trump is charismatic in a very untraditional yes, way. Exactly. And I ended up thinking it was going to like he was searching for the prize in the will or something, but he ended up not being related to it at all. Yeah. He just served as a character piece for Stevie. For her to be in conflict with her love interest, who is his son. And then for her friends to all steal his blackmail materials that he was using for funding for his presidential campaign and then destroying them. I don't know if that's how blackmail things work, too. I just, the whole storyline, that's this is one storyline. In the first three books, I really, really liked them. The Edward King stuff was just weird for me. Yeah, it is interesting that agents of the state, uh, the FBI agent and Edward King, like they are negative characters, but like they just like unequivocally, I mean, I guess this FBI agent is a little bit tragic. Like he succumbed to his, I don't know, gambling addiction and then, you know, ended up making a lot of bad decisions and one thing led to the next and it's a big Rube Goldberg machine to use the metaphor of the book. And then it led to all these bad things. So, I mean, obviously he's a bad character, but he's a little bit more tragic. Whereas Edward King is just, like, fully negative. But these private billionaires are both, like, pretty positive. And that is that is a weird dynamic in the book of the, like, distrust agents of the state, trust the buffoon-slash-benevolent billionaires. Yeah, and even, the, like, her adult BFF Larry, who does security in the first three books... Like, he can only help her once he's outside of the system. Yeah, yeah, right. He's a much better partner when he's working privately rather than working for the state. Well, in that case, the state is a school, but yeah. the, the point is institutions. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, So back to the role that the Edward King thing plays in the narrative generally, and not just like this private versus public dynamic, is that it seems like it's mostly there to characterize both David and Stevie and Stevie's parents and Stevie's status quo. And that's like, that is actually an interesting thing. Like Stevie status quo with her parents who are, you know, Trump supporters or Edward King supporters, however you want to say it. This book functions kind of like Harry Potter in that it's like a wizarding school. Like she starts off in this sort of like a, a weird household that she doesn't fit in. She goes to this world with magical students who build robots and create worlds and whatever. 
and then at the end returns home only to be pulled back into this Hogwarts-like place in the middle of Vermont. You know, there's something a little hero journey about it, but yeah, it does a lot to characterize her and her status quo, and it characterizes David and his status quo and why perhaps they're attracted to each other, why they have these like antisocial tendencies is like distrust of other people. The one plot hole in this whole situation is there's no way in hell her parents who loved Edward King this much did not recognize David as his son. Like that just like blew my mind. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Obviously like I can recognize all the Trump kids because that's because they're in media. Like I see them on like SNL or things. But like I couldn't identify like one of Mitt Romney's 17 children. (laughs) So, like, I get that Stevie wouldn't recognize him, but her parents definitely would. And they had lunch with him. Yeah. I'm sorry. This bothered me a lot. Yeah. I mean, I guess the book tries to get around that with the, like, he goes through great lengths to keep that part of his family life private. But, yeah, somebody that public. Yeah. I'm often on the Bachelor subreddit. And if people can figure out who won a season based on matching wallpaper and Instagram stories... People definitely know who Edward King's secret son from his first marriage is. That's all I'm saying. It's a plot hole. But yeah, back to your actual point around like how something that brings them together is like this antisocialness. And like, there's something that I was thinking about as the book goes forward, because Stevie talks about it a bit of like, who is the real Stevie? Mm -hmm. And like, so much of her being able to be the real Stevie is able to come out at Ellingham, the real you is able to come out because of Hogwarts because you're being your magic side. It's like a, a version of an acceptance coming out story. But what's interesting is I feel like closer to the end of the book, she's starting to reconcile that like both of those Stevies can be true. Yeah. Like the person that she is with her family, her parents love her and they don't freak out when she stays during the snowstorm. They're just like, oh, we're so glad that you're okay. Yeah, they come to the school when they think that she's in danger to save her. Like they they do genuinely care about her and she appreciates that to some extent. Right. And I think that there's an acceptance of shades of gray from Stevie as the books move on. I mean, this is a very teenage thing. Again, not to blanket statement all teenagers, but (laughs) going from black and whites into nuances of gray as um, you get older and she dives deeper into the mysteries, because especially mysteries are a very black and white genre. Who killed who? Have they been brought to justice? Yeah, there's a right answer. Right. And so uh, I think what's interesting is while we're still getting like the murder mystery flavor from all of the books, even in the second mystery, really they serve as a backsetting for Stevie to become more sure in who she is. Yeah. And to embrace those shades of gray and all the sides of Stevie. Yeah. And I I was thinking about this in trying to figure out, like, what kind of detective Stevie is. Because she's actually, you know, she's obviously at the center of these books. And mystery novels often have the charismatic detective, Sherlock Holmes and Pericles Perot. I don't know if I'm saying that name right. Marlowe is another one from a book I've never read. Um, But (laughs) they have these reputations of being these charismatic detective characters. I was thinking about this one distinction I've heard, and I've heard it called like American versus British detectives, but I don't think that that really holds up too well. But the the distinction is that there are some detectives that actually have some sort of special ability, like the mentalist or monk or Sherlock Holmes. Psych. Psych, where they're just like better at doing something than everybody else around them, and it is that special ability that makes them good at being a detective. And then there's this other type of detective that is just... 
is just a survivor. Like they are defined by their grit and resilience and they just stay alive long enough to figure out who killed the person. And they're the ones who the police chief is saying, you got to stay away from this one kid. Like it's too big. And they just stay with it and stay with it until everybody around them's dead. But they stay alive long enough to figure it out and they win. And Stevie's like a combination of both of these. And I think that she's able to pull that off because she's working in a cold case. Like, if you think about a detective fiction in terms of, like, having two levels, there's the level of action, which is, like, the murder, the thing that happened, and then there's a level of thought, and that's, like, all the evidence, and you have to do this deductive reasoning to figure out who did it. Stevie operates in both those levels because there's the event that happened in the past, in which case she's just operating with knowledge. Like, she's just doing deductive reasoning based on the bits of evidence that she has. And that's where she's like a Sherlock Holmes or a monk type character where she's just like looking at the things, figuring it out. But then in her present day where there are actually like people around her dying and everybody's like, Stevie, walk away from this one. You can't do it. And she like survives it. She's like operating on both these levels of a detective. And I think that's what separates her from other previous detectives is that she's fulfilling all of the archetypes of detective at once. Yeah. The vibe I got mostly from Stevie was Veronica Mars. Mm. Which is definitely like everyone's dying around you. Yeah. Also teenage detective. And I think in both of them is the superpower that they have. So Veronica Mars obviously was trained by her dad to be a super detective because he's a detective. But I think that what her superpower ends up being, which is horrible, is like she's sexually assaulted. Mm -hmm. And that sort of like is an instigator for her to like fully own and actually become a detective in her own right. And I think for Stevie, it ends up being her anxiety. Yeah. There's something about that storyline of her having anxiety throughout the books and how she's able to use those coping skills to understand that, like, anxiety creates incredible paranoia where everything can matter. Everything feels so significant and everything's going to kill you. And all of her skills in managing her anxiety have been able to focus her on breathe in, breathe out focus on what actually is happening. And she's able to do that in the crime scene. And she's able to do that for her peers as well. And I think that to me is like a really cool superpower, um, especially for a teenager. Having anxiety attacks about things <laughs> like tests. Yeah. And then this person's like using it to solve murders. Yeah, and I think the connection with Veronica Mars is, it might be called out in her name, Stevie Bell. Veronica Mars, played by Kristen Bell. I love it. I think there's also something about Veronica Mars, and this is like a darker sentiment. Also, spoilers for Veronica Mars, but also why haven't you watched Veronica Mars at this point? There's something that's difficult about moving on to the next mystery. Thinking about this as a book series that could continue with like more mysteries and different mysteries is what is the point of David? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, right. This like aloof video game designer trying to... I don't know, reconcile the sins of his father by becoming a political activist. And he's there, but he's not there. And he comes in and out. I mean, I think part of it is that he's, they're both misanthropic. So it allows her to be on her own and she allows him to be on his own. I don't know. I don't see many teenage relationships like this one. I think it's pretty good to have this, like, they are two independent people with very different interests who still care about each other and support each other and are there when they need each other. Yes. 
No, no. So I definitely agree about that. The other thing I've been thinking about is Spider-Man because I just saw Spider-Man, mm-hmm. the third movie, No Way Home. No spoilers for that one because I don't believe in spoilers, but I'm definitely not going to spoil that one. <laughs> you should just <laughs> yeah. see it in theaters. Yeah, the internet will be very mad. That's how you get canceled. Yeah, exactly. That's like my one exception to spoilers is I will not spoil the final Spider-Man movie. There's something about having a team around him where everyone has a specialty. Something that empowers him compared to like other Spider-Mans in the past is they didn't have teams around them. And so he's got Ned, who's like his computer guy, and Zendaya, MJ, she's really street smart, as well as obviously being like smart, smart, and is able to like figure out things faster than other people. Mm -hmm. I feel like we were given that with her friend Nate, as well as her friend Janelle. Like each of them have like a role that they play in the mysteries Mm -hmm. and like why they continue to be in the mysteries. Right. Nate understands narrative. Janelle's a whiz with robots and machines and things. Yeah. I thought that what was going to happen was David was going to become like the tech guy. Yeah. Where he was going to be like hacking systems for them and things like that that would keep him close to the narrative. But they didn't do that. No. He only hacks things for himself. Yes. (laughs) And it reminded me a lot of the final Veronica Mars season where Logan, her love interest, is really ancillary to the plot. He joins like the military and then joins like a military contractor or something. Mm-hmm. And he's like, you need to get it together and like almost becomes more part of the status quo a little bit and trying to like stabilize Veronica. And then he dies, which then causes her to go completely off the rails. Not that it's going to happen to David. I don't think David's going to die. Mm-hmm. But I think there is a question. I remember <laughs> the creator of Veronica Mars was like, well, I have to do this. Like, Veronica can't have a love interest. Like, that will limit her character right. and her ability to solve crimes anywhere. And I was like, oh, no. Is that what's going to happen to David? Like, why aren't we including David more in the narrative? Why can't detectives have everything? <laughs> they can have it all. <laughs> yeah, why can't teenage female detectives have it all? Although I do think that's another interesting part about Stevie's character growth is because she goes from like introvert, nerdy girl who like doesn't associate with others. And then she actually like develops her sexuality throughout the books too, Mm -hmm. where she's like, I don't know why my body wants this. How is this working with David? But I need to make out with him now more than I want to solve a murder. I think that that's like a really valuable thing to show in her like complete development. And so I think it's really powerful. I just wish David was more part of the narrative. Right, they're using him in weird ways. Like, he is randomly on the lake when she jumps in in the fourth book and has to save her. And that's, like, because he's sort of doing his own thing, living in the woods. I also like how all the books sort of flirt with a love triangle, but then, like, they don't even flirt with it. Like, I'm flirting with it as a reader, but the books never actually flirt with it. Like, at first, I'm like, ooh, Nate or David. And then, like... Nate just, like, slips without any protest into friendship, and David becomes the the love interest. And then there's Hunter, the, like, college student, son of the researcher, and I'm like, oh, they've got a thing. But no, they don't. They don't. Like, that's just me. No! No, and then then he ends up um, with, like, Jermaine or someone. Yeah, yeah. In, like, a throwaway line and a pair of the spares moment, and you're like, wait, what? Yeah. Did this even need to happen? He's a college student. He does not need to date a high schooler. Yeah, man. And Jermaine. What a weird character Jermaine is. No nonsense. Get the story attitude. I mean, it's really great. The project-based learning that goes on at Ellingham Mm -hmm. with authentic tasks. (laughs) (laughs) Like one might encounter in the real world. Yeah, with this hand-picked student body that it works for. I mean, I don't want to, like, go down that rabbit hole 
but like they all have different strengths. There's no way that you should have one school that houses both a premier opera singer and <laughs> like a, a mechanics Rupert. genius. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like yeah. they're trying to explain why, but then all of them have private tutors. Yeah. But like if you're an opera singer, you should be singing in operas with people who are at the same level as you. No, you shouldn't retreat to the mountains of Vermont. That doesn't make any sense. There's no opera scene there. No. It makes sense like Janelle and David being in the same place. You got hardware, software. But the world-class author who wrote a book at 14, the opera singer, like these things don't don't fit together. Yeah, just not with such a small student body, no matter how many like private tutors you can get. Especially just maybe this is my personal opinion in the performing arts. I don't think we'd encounter any like sports stars, but it'd be like, oh, this is the best baseball player in the right. world. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. No, that man should be playing with other baseball players. Yes. He shouldn't be retreating to the woods in Vermont. <laughs> I do really like Nate as a character. Like I... Uh, <laughs> that's why my intro was achieving peak me like Nate the like author that doesn't write you write all the time you just <laughs> and, uh, talked about how you write like 1500 I know I know but it's all nonfiction. fiction <laughs> it's not what I it's not what I want to be writing <laughs> and uh, I like how the eight-year-old uh, actually gets him to do it again like that that whole dynamic was great in the fourth book the the annoying eight-year-old <laughs> who's constantly hounding him about why his book should have been better. Yeah. What's cool about the camp setting is as like a young adult, you get to become more of like a mini adult because you're in charge of kids. And I feel like a lot of times with these teenage stories, you really waffle between like, what is the role of adults in these teenage journeys? And often it's just like these kids like ignoring adults and like going on their own adventures. But what's cool about having like children in the scene, little, little campers, is that you actually... I think part of what being an adult is is actually paying it forward to the next generation. Mm -hmm. Is like not going completely antisocial, but actually figuring out how do you start having your own relationship with the next generation. And then realizing they have things to teach you, which I think is a beautiful part about like these teenagers are teaching the adults on how they should be acting and what they should be doing and how they should be solving mysteries. But also these younger campers are also telling these teenagers like how to get their shit together. (sighs) The children are our future, to quote... Whitney Houston. Yeah. And I wonder how that plays with the like progression of uh, the world that Stevie Bell inhabits. If the genre itself was a conservative one, that's like trying to retreat to some idealized past before the murders happened and whatever. This idea of these people handing down, like Nate, uh, uh, handing down his skills to the eight-year-old and Stevie Bell solving these crimes that then allow this community to move past it. Like, how does that work? in sort of with a progressive attitude towards change as possible and desired in the future. Basically, like, Stevie there solving these crimes ends up leading to more murders. Okay, so this is also peak Spider-Man. Again, everyone should just see see the Spider-Man movies. I'm not spoiling it because in the first Spider-Man movie, the exact same thing happens. He is trying to do good in the world, and by doing good, he's causing more damage. Yeah. Because he's just like, this thing is wrong, and so I'm going to try to fight this guy, and then I'm going to create all of these, like, cascading effects that I'm not aware of. How much of it is, like, because this is your first time solving a mystery, or it's your first time being a superhero, and so you don't know how to do it 
like in the best way to like and to think through the collateral damage. Yeah, and Stevie definitely struggles with that, where she is uh, like realizing that these are real humans. I mean, that's the first thing that Call Me Charles wants to teach her when she gets there. It's like these are murders that happen to people. You need to make them human for yourself. And we don't really get her learning that lesson until the fourth book when she's dealing with people who are actually affected by the crime and when she's interviewing them and they're like actually upset about things. So yeah, her trying to figure out like how to be this person who's obsessed with the game and still care about the people that are impacted by the game. Yeah. And I think the framing of game was very interesting to me. And obviously it was more prominent in the first three books. But I think all mysteries to a certain extent are a game. Mm-hmm. I think like the question often with games is like, does there have to be a loser for there to be a winner? Or are we playing a collaborative game mm-hmm. where we can all work together and win together? With this one, like if Stevie doesn't show up at this camp... Does anybody else die? Like, I'm not so sure that they come up with the turtle cookie jar and everything like that. Like, it's her presence that has people closely looking at the past again. And this leads to more deaths. Like, some really bad stuff happens. And so is it worth localizing blame in that Nazi and his daughter in order for the community to move on? Like, I'm not so sure that the game was worth it. And I don't know if the if the novel actually deals with that. Well, especially that she's able to just, like, leave that community at the end. Yeah. And I think that was a little bit why the Ellingham ones felt closer is because like she has to deal with the consequences of it. She has to live through those consequences versus this community. I don't know like if there's another book like they dealt with it. They have their library and the box box man right. like leaves now that he's solved the murder and has his podcast. Well now it's a TV series. Oh sorry it's a TV series. It's definitely right. a TV series. Yeah. So I've been listening to the Haleywood podcast about how Bruce Willis like basically tried to create his own ideal town in Idaho. I did not know this. Yes, I didn't either. And he basically just like bought all these buildings and like created his like ideal movie theater and stage theater and like bought all these things and put all this investment in it. And then like a lot of things happen, but he and Demi more end up getting divorced and he basically just pulls out his investment. He still has a house around there, but like most of his business has now been owned by other people. And I think that's a danger of like a billionaire investment in something like a town or a mystery is once they're done with it being interested, they can pull out. Now I'm wondering for this town, exactly what you're saying, like, what are the consequences? Is this billionaire going to stay around? Yeah. Like they talk about this. They're like, people come in here, try to like extort us for our mystery and then they leave. Right. And and just because the mystery solved, it doesn't really mean that this is going to be any different of a story. Now they leave. People are dead. The Nazi's daughter is going to jail. And that's another thing that I thought about is the Nazi's daughter has been trying to do some work of repenting, where she's trying to bring some some sunshine back to the town. And then it all gets brought up again. And I don't think that she's done much bad in the time since those murders. I, I don't know why I'm being forgiving of a murderer, a Nazi's daughter, and Nazi... <laughs> <laughs> apologist but wow but it does seem like she was on a path to some sort of redemption and now that's over blame has been localized she's going to go to prison the bakery diner shuts down and like is this town better off because Stevie and a billionaire entered and solved things I don't know and I don't know if the book like actually deals with that issue I think that this is like the key thing about going through cold cases too at a certain point, like, things calcify yeah. over the things that were not great. Right. And to reopen the wound. And the book does deal with that, with the reopening of the wound. Like, I think that that metaphor is actually said out loud a couple of times. Yeah. But, like, is solving it? Yeah. I, I don't know. It's an interesting question. And it is definitely, like, a type of question that works well 
being explored inside a novel, like does having an answer, having some sort of truth, like does localizing blame like that actually do anything? I'm not so sure that the book engages with it, but it's it certainly asks it. I think the, the question is always like, who are you doing this for? I was thinking a lot about the Gabby Petito case and like how obsessed the internet was about it to the point that like they were harassing family members who may or may not have been involved. We don't know. You're making a lot of very rampant assumptions because you want to be this like true crime junkie detective situation. What is this human obsession with like solving these cases because they need to know the truth for themselves? Does our need for truth, is it higher or more powerful or more necessary than like these families being able to grieve? Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a weird situation. I think like our instinct is to value this search for truth and to have those answers. But at some point, like the reconciling, the going through the process of dealing with and processing a trauma, that is to some extent more important than random truth. I guess one way to think about it is in terms of justice, where, you know, if there is somebody who has been responsible for a murder in the past is calling everybody's attention to the fact that they committed a murder in the past, likely to deter other murders and deter that person from murdering again, like regardless of, you know, take away the the jail time and whatever, there is something about just exposing that truth and that being a way to protect the community that's that's there by exposing the truth. The books also talk about like the dangers of getting it wrong. Like I think Ellie in the first trilogy is a good example of something where Stevie thought she was doing the right thing and was like, Ellie was involved. I found out that she had gotten $500 from Hayes and blah, 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 blah. And then Ellie ends up dead because Stevie reached a conclusion too quickly. Right, and she ends up dead in a tunnel that doesn't have a way out, which is a really interesting metaphor. It's a really cool objective correlative. Like, it's a really cool way that the setting matches the plot in the first three books, where you have this, like, crazy wizarding school in the mountains of Vermont, and it has all these random tunnels in it. And so the idea that, like, things are connected in unexpected ways. Things look like they're connected, but then don't have a way out. It fits a murder mystery novel, because that's, like, the point of a murder mystery novel, is to say, there were connections that you missed. They were hidden underneath the buildings. I thought that was pretty cool. And like a pretty cool extended metaphor that goes throughout it in the same way that like the closed system boxes are an extended metaphor that run through the fourth book, just sort of the opposite of the- It's in the walls. Connections, yeah, yeah. But the fact that she dies in a tunnel that doesn't have a way out is like, that was a false connection. It was the problem of getting it wrong and entering a tunnel that doesn't have a way out. Yeah, it like literally led you to a dead end. Yeah, in a very literal way. The other big extended metaphor in the first three books is the Rube Goldberg machine. This idea that our actions set off things and they have effects that maybe we see and maybe we don't see. And all of the murders in the first three books that happen in the present day are the result of somebody just putting things in motion like a Rube Goldberg machine. And I think that's a really interesting extended metaphor as well. That it like has an impetus. It has like a starting space that you could just like create the environment for something to happen and then it happens. Yeah, and like try to wash your hands of the guilt of it. Yeah. Because you didn't do it. Nope. They technically yeah. walked in there themselves. Yeah. Just like they one, technically two, lit the match. Right. They, they were smoking. Yeah. They tried to escape. They lit the match. Yeah. And there's something that's interesting about like how you murder someone, I suppose. Because <laughs> I think it's a good contrast. Like 
obviously like the Nazi dude was like, I'm just stabbing people left and right and then putting them in a box. Yeah. Versus like, call me Charles is not like a natural born killer. There was a quote in one of them where it's like the first murder is hard and then it becomes easier. Yeah. He did not want to be murdering people. But he needed the variables gone. Right. And so there was a cowardness to it. Right. Whereas the Nazi was just unapologetically a Nazi and was murdering people when they were getting in the way. And then the Nazi's daughter was doing the same thing, just... Shooting things up. Shooting things up. Putting putting ice down. Oh, sorry. Also, also, she, also she had ice down. Yeah, that one was, was more clever than the shooting people through the woods. Yeah, that was another just laying the thing yeah. down and letting it happen. Diabolical. Why are teenagers obsessed with death? Because I feel like in every generation, there is like the book or book series or author that's like teenagers love. Right. But it's all about death. True crime in general is like at a peak right now. But like even before vampires, if you're familiar with Lurleen McDaniel, that was like my childhood, which was this woman who just wrote a bunch of books Mm. about kids who like had cancer and were going to die but fell in love it's very john green fault in our stars she i feel like pioneered the genre in the late 90s and we loved them we loved these books like we love vampires we love fault in our stars is there something about the immediacy of death when you're just at the beginning of life there's something that hit me uniquely strong as a teenager reading these kind of books then hit me as an adult. Right. This is an interesting thing, yeah. Because the, the Fault of Our Stars relies on this idea that your life is a little infinity and it in- includes all the complexity, even if it's shorter. And maybe that's the appeal is like, okay, we only have 14 years of life experience, but we are still capable. Like, it demands that, I don't know, young love and these kinds of things be taken seriously because, I don't know, there's it like operates on a shorter scale, like a never let me go. Like their lives are going to end at 30, but they're still able to go through all of the life stages and feelings of grief and pain and love. Yeah. Like a walk to remember. Yeah. Where they get married at like 17 or whatever. So it like demands that these things be taken seriously, that they... Because it's so easy to take young love and not take it seriously. Like, ah, you'll get over it. There'll be other fish in the sea. I don't know. There's like all those like cliche things. But like, if the person's going to die in two years, like, no, no, there won't be. This actually demands to be taken seriously. They're always going to be 17. You don't want to be 50. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So you should become a vampire now. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Vampire is an interesting one because vampires are the opposite of death. Well, I think it feeds the idea of like, you can live forever. Like you're going to be like this forever. Like that risk-taking, joy-riding sort of thing. Right, it's risk-taking. That's part of it. It's like there's high drama in the risk-taking. And I think to bring it back to Stevie, like the idea that people are dying around her and that death becomes a really uh, present thing in her life and David's life, that the stakes are real, makes the, everything a little bit more dramatic. I don't, I don't know. I don't know why teenagers in particular are... I don't know why the youths, why us olds don't care about death as much as the youths. If you're a teenager listening to this, tell us why you love death. <laughs> why it's more interesting. Why is it more interesting? Maybe it's because we're trying to avoid it. Yeah, yeah. We're, it's too real for us. It's too real. It's like it's like there's wills involved. I've got to sign documents. There's a notary involved. Yeah. I didn't have to do any of that stuff as a teenager. Yeah. What was I going to say about Stevie? So the, the stakes are like... T- higher because of the murders are happening yeah i think what's interesting about cold cases is they don't really have a ticking clock 
yeah, the murderer is gone. Like, there's no way that the murderer of truly devious, truly comma devious, is still around and still killing people. So catching them, it's not about justice. It's not about, like, let's remove this person from the community and save the world or whatever. And so I think there's something interesting about that because, like, in order to, like, add a ticking clock, people have to be dying in the present. Yeah. But even then, sometimes I feel like Stevie and her friends are a little too lackadaisical about all the people who are dying. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't know what the appropriate response is, but to be whatever she is, 15, and to keep on pursuing this, even though her friends are dying, and not think like, maybe I'm too young to be trying to solve this, and maybe I'm doing more damage by doing an amateur job of it. But I mean, that's her anxiety. That's like I, that. That's I think what makes her engaging is that she does persist and she's got this grit, and that she does end up solving it. I yeah. don't know. I enjoyed them. Oh no, I really liked them. I mean, I, I enjoyed the first three. Again, surprise Nazis is not my favorite murder mystery conclusion. No, I'd say the fourth one I liked the best though. Like I really liked how uh, she was dealing with real people. There was like an, an urgency to it that that the first three, I don't know if they ever really achieved. Like I was on the edge of my seat when she jumped up the thing and broke her arm and all that. No, no, no. I was Everything in up until it felt like the end of the book was rushed. We finally end it. We read like a full chapter of her just reading the diary out loud for an hour in front of this gathering of people. <laughs> and then she was like, so you can see from this diary, it was Nazis the whole time. <laughs> and I was like, wait, Yeah. I feel like you just negated the first 80% of this novel. <laughs> I think one of the criticisms of detective fiction is that it can never reveal systemic issues. It can only reveal individual issues. It's like an attempt at saying, well, there was a whole system that was the problem at some point, And that, that system has infected other systems. I don't know. One, one book I think that did a really interesting thing with the detective genre is The Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime, which the murder mystery, if you want to call it that, is solved like, oh, I don't know, 100 pages into the 300-page book. And the point is, well, you solved it. It was the dad. And uh, it doesn't matter that you solved it. Like, there are way bigger issues involved here. There's a, it's a way more complicated than just saying this person did it and then everything's fine. The main character looks for a single answer, finds the single answer, and it's just entirely insufficient. And so I don't know how you do that. And uh, I don't know how these books could do that. But I think it was maybe an attempt to say that there was a systemic problem and not just an individual problem. I mean, Nazis are. Or like being okay with Nazis living there. But the Nazi dad wasn't even alive. I think that at least with the first three books, like George Marsh was the kidnapper, but we got to know him as a character. We never really got to know Nazi dad. Yeah, that's true. And so we'd just be like, all Nazis are evil. <laughs> we knew that already. <laughs> Sorry. I, I feel like there's nuances to being a Nazi. We didn't even get to like have that nuance with this Nazi. No, just, he's a good dad, just protecting his daughter. Her, her boyfriend break up with her and make out with someone else in the pool cabana. <laughs> I guess I just pop off and kill them all. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. It, I, yeah. It's terrible. It's terrible. Those are really terrible murder. All right. Yeah. I think maybe we've done it with this one. Yeah. Let's pick our book for next month. Yeah. I heard that you were looking at, I heard, <laughs> yeah, I heard our producer has a really good list of books that we should definitely read. That are based on the most mentioned books in top YA lists of 2021. 
And there was one book that was a runaway winner. It's going to force you to break one of your rules. Oh, no. If we read it. So to our listeners, Melissa has a rule that she never reads a book that's the something's something. And the runaway winner of this year's most mentioned YA book of the year is Firekeeper's Daughter, which is the something's something. I just feel like in these things, can it just be like the daughter of the firekeeper? Put the agency on the person. I don't need the adventurer's wife, the wife of the time traveler. The Anyways. The time traveler. <laughs> a person married to a person who time travels. Like, give them exactly. their personhood. Exactly. It's it's fine. I am very excited to read Firekeeper's Daughter. I will get over my rule. It's fine. Okay. Firekeeper's Daughter by Angeline Booley. Okay, so that's what we'll read for next month. Well, welcome to 2022. We will continue to talk about books with you with Firekeeper's Daughter next month. Literary Connections is hosted by me, James Earl, and Melissa Hansen, and we're produced by Kimberly Johnson. You can follow us on Twitter at lit underscore connections, and join us next month when we'll be reading Firekeeper's Daughter by Angeline Booley. See you then! When you make me laugh I, and I'm leaning on a table, I shake the table, <laughs> and that's not good for the audio.